0: So from last week, Jesus was doing some teaching through parables of what the kingdom looks like, what he intended on earth, and and we know that it was going to be this gradual process and the kingdom would grow and he would use his church to grow the kingdom and touch the world with who Jesus was. But the thing was, it starts as a mustard seed, and that mustard seed is with the disciples and it had to grow in them. They didn't just automatically know this is who Jesus was. They, they couldn't get their heads around it. And so Jesus very intentionally for the next four uh, stories that we're going to talk about, He begins to stretch their minds and impress, impress on them who He is. And it's sort of like, okay, He's been doing all this teaching and, and now, it's, now class is out and we're going to go try it. We're going to go put it into practice like if any of you have taught anyone how to drive, you can tell someone how to drive all you want. But it's a completely different story when you get in the car and hand them the keys and pray fervently for your life. It's a different story because now we're putting it into practice. And we we move to a point where Jesus now is doing that with the disciples. He's testing their faith, challenging their faith. Expanding their faith. And I like to call these four stories the faith narratives or the authority narratives because the two go together as he describes who he is. So if you'll turn with me to Mark chapter four. Mark chapter four. We're going to start at verse 35 where we left off last week. Mark chapter four, verse 35. And we're going to to briefly look at two different stories this morning. We're going to look at the calming of the sea and the healing of the demoniac. And we're going to see things about Christ because really, don't we need to understand God? Aren't we living in a world that needs a big God? That needs to understand who He is and to have our minds stretched? So as we look at these and we see Jesus revealing Himself to the disciples... My hope is that He's revealing Himself to us too. Challenging us maybe in areas that we already know, maybe in things that we already think we know about Jesus, but challenging us to stretch our minds and try to get our our heads around how great God is. So in the first story, the story of the the calming of the sea, we see in in point number A there, or, or number one, Jesus is sovereign over every circumstance we face. Jesus is sovereign over every circumstance we face. Trust Him. Trust Him. And so as we see in the story, Jesus is showing that He has authority over circumstances and over nature. Let's begin reading at verse 35. And and as we read, we'll see the same thing in both of these accounts. There's a challenge to who Jesus is there's a response, Jesus' response, and then the result in the, the disciples or in those around. And so we start reading at verse 35. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. Now, now keep in mind, this is the day that he's teaching through the parables. And he's just spent a long day on the side of, of the Sea of Galilee. And if you remember, the crowds were pressing in. So he said, Get me a boat. And, they got him a boat and he pushed out just a little ways so people wouldn't be crowding around and they could hear him. And he's been pouring out teaching and ministry all day. And by the end of the day, he's, he's tired. He's exhausted. So many times when we come to, to the Gospel of Mark, we forget that Jesus was fully human as well as fully God. And he experienced being weary and exhausted and saying, I can't do this anymore physically and so he at the end of the day said let's get away he said let's go across to the other side let's take a little boat ride together now in the sea of galilee i think we have a map of the sea of galilee and the laser pointer thank you hopefully you can see that there's the sea there and jesus is up in this area doing the teaching A lot of people think probably Capernaum because he he may have still been making his headquarters at Peter's house there, but he's somewhere in this area and he's, he's teaching and he's going to come across over here to Gergesa in that area and this is a completely different area. Now the Sea of Galilee at its widest point is about seven miles across. They estimate that this journey was about five miles across. It would have taken about two hours. And so a combination of both wind and sailing and some rowing. And so we're, we're at evening here, and he's going to come across over to here. Now, that may seem like a simple little journey, but this is actually very significant, because if you look here, this is Galilee. This is where it was mostly Jews that he was ministering to and, and preaching to. And you had some Jerusalem. Jerusalem is down here somewhere, and, and the Dead Sea down here, and... Um, But he's up here ministering to Jews. Now, if you look over here, this is the Decapolis, which means ten cities. And it was ten cities that were mostly Gentiles. And so this represented a a huge step in ministry of taking the gospel to the world, taking it to the nations. And we're going to see Jesus' response once he gets over here, or his actions, a little different because it's a different setting. But that's the background of where he's going and what's happening here and And they, they, they come across, and it says, let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus' idea. They're in this boat, and he says, let's go. Verse 38. I'm, I'm sorry. Verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. The idea being he didn't go and get anything. They just said, let's go. And they left, and they obeyed. And other boats were with him. And then the challenge. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. On the Sea of Galilee, one of the things that it is known for is the storms and the quickness of the storms that can come up. The Sea of Galilee is a little bit more than 600 feet below sea level, so it's down in this valley. And and on the side of it, especially the western side, over on, on this way, there's these deep, deep valleys that go into the Sea of Galilee that come down into this basin. And what would happen in the afternoons is the wind would just come whipping down through these valleys and then it would hit the basin and just go across the sea. And, and even today, there, there can be waves up to seven feet tall that, that this wind is whipping up. These were not huge boats. I think we showed a picture of a boat a number of weeks ago. But it wouldn't have even been all the way across the sanctuary here. Smaller than this, maybe seven feet wide. And so these are are pretty small boats, and these winds are just picking up. The other thing that would happen, if that wasn't bad enough, it gets worse. The the Sea of Galilee, because it's in this this low basin, would generate heat. And and heat would rise, but but just a few miles away, you had the Golan Heights and some, some high mountains where the air was cool. And so whenever you have cooling air coming down and hot air going up, what do you get? Thunderstorms. And they would happen like that. Uh, Much like at times up in the Sierras where where we camp, the the college fit group is going on a camping trip soon, and it's not uncommon that it'll be a beautiful day and perfectly clear, and within 20, 30 minutes, a huge storm comes up, and lightning, and thunder, and it's raining, and then an hour later, it's clear again. And it's because, again, they, even in the Sierras, they have the valley with the desert, and then the high mountains, and the mixture of the air creates this environment. That's the Sea of Galilee. So it doesn't, it makes a little more sense how this storm would just come up. And the challenge, a great windstorm arose, waves were breaking into the boat, literally over the boat. Not a big boat, waves going over, that's a problem. So that the boat was already filling. We see the response. Jesus' response in verse 38. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. Great response, isn't it? And in the back of the boat, they'd have a little deck that, that the sailors could sit on and underneath that deck, people could go down and, or, or just get under and sleep. And he's under there sleeping. And the disciples are like, what? They're getting upset, and if we read on, and they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Don't you care about us? Don't you understand what's happening? And, and it's important to understand their words here are significantly a rebuke. And so they wake Jesus up, and they rebuke him. They didn't quite know who he was yet. Because if they did, they would not have rebuked him. And they wake him up and, and they're saying, you brought us out here, you said to come across, and now the storms are coming over, and, and incidentally we can see just the, the, the scope of the storm because these men are fishermen who knew the Sea of Galilee, who lived on the Sea of Galilee, and they're panicking. That is the, the nature of the trouble that is happening. And they wake him up. And we're going to dig into that a little bit later when we go back through some of the points of the story. But they're concerned that he doesn't care. They're concerned that they're bailing water as fast as they can, and he's taking a nap. And in verse 39, and he being Jesus, he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still! And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. Peace, be still. Literally, be muzzled. Stop! And we see a double miracle happen. Because the wind stops immediately. But on the Sea of Galilee, when the wind stops, it takes a while for the sea to calm down. But we see the sea calm immediately. And I can only imagine sitting there in that boat, the disciples, and I've just woken Jesus up and rebuked Him. Don't you care? And He stands up and does something I can't even understand. I've never seen before. The sea is clear. I'm going, "Uh uh-oh. And then He turns and He looks at me. And He says in verse 40, And He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And this is the result. They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And in this incident we see The, the nature of Christ, we see the incarnation as he is fully human and he's exhausted and he's genuinely asleep and he's fully God because he stands and just has to say a word and nature bows to his authority. And the disciples were blown away. They had no idea. So that's the story that Mark relates in the first of his stories of how Jesus reveals himself. It's interesting, Mark here deliberately draws parallels to Jonah. If you think about the story and you think about Jonah, both had a a man that gets on a boat. For different reasons, admittedly so, but but they wouldn't have lost this, this comparison. Both get on a boat. Both fall asleep. A storm comes up and threatens the, the boat in both of them. The sailors wake both of them up. They both are, are part of calming the sea. Jonah, not because of his authority, but because he repented and gave his life. Jesus, because of his authority, and he was going to give his life. And the sailors in both were saved. The disciples in one and the sailors. And they both were in fear of God and their concept of who God is was drastically opened up. And so Mark here in how he tells the story, he's a brilliant storyteller, is bringing the hearer back to Jonah and said, from your history, you've seen God work in this way. And now Jesus is that same God. And it's a testimony to His deity that this is the Messiah as Mark continues to prove to people. And so this story shows us that Jesus is sovereign over every circumstance we face. But three thoughts, three specific things I want to pull out, and I'm sure there's more we can pull out, but let's grab three of them. First, God often intentionally allows storms in our lives to test and build our faith. This is not the best news in the world. God often intentionally allows storms in our lives to test and build our faith. Be open to it. Did you catch in verse 35 what happened? On that day when evening had come, he Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side. He knew what was going to happen. He knew a storm was coming. He's omniscient. This wasn't hidden from Him. It wasn't a random thought. Jesus intentionally asked them to go to the other side, knowing that they would be almost drowned. Is that hard to swallow? Is that hard to swallow? See, the thing about sovereignty is, we like sovereignty when it means that God is going to work out all things for our good. In the way that we want Him to. But sovereignty always cuts both ways because that means Jesus can do whatever He wants. And if He knows the situation is going to build our faith and test our faith and bring us to the place that He needs us to be, then then praise God, He can do that. And Jesus knows their lack of faith. He knows that they've been hearing the parables, but they still don't get who He is And he knows they're going to have to have a deeper faith if the church is to be founded and if the gospel is to spread to the world. And so he says, let's take a boat ride. Sort of like when I said to some of the youth, let's take a walk. And God is sovereignly over all things. Even the storm. Even the boat that is about to sink. God is sovereign. Now understand, and we don't have time to unpack this, sovereignty does not mean causation. And we talked about this last week and a few weeks ago, primary causes and secondary causes. It does not mean that God has to cause all things, but He is over all things and in control of all things and uses all things. And at times, He allows things sovereignly to happen. Did God cause the the storm? Maybe. Maybe not. You're like, okay, what do you mean by that? That, that covers all the bases. God can cause storms. He, he did with Noah. He can cause natural disasters. And He does cause natural disasters, sometimes for, for the purposes of his, of his glory, sometimes for the purposes of judgment. But understand this, natural disasters also come because we have sinned and, and introduced sin into the world and the result of a fallen world. And the way He created the world and the warnings He gave is you introduce sin, which is defiling of the world I created and disruptive of the world I created and there are consequences. And sometimes I think we blame God too much for things that we should be taking human responsibility for because they're results of our sin. But understand, because of His sovereignty, He can do either. And when we say a sovereign God, we mean that no matter no matter if it's a result of judgment or a result of our sin, that God will use it for His plan. And it doesn't surprise Him. He will use it for His plan. And in this case, we know that God is sovereignly over all things. And the disciples wake Him up. And in their mind, the question is, do you love Me? Do you love Me? Do you care about us? And they don't understand that sometimes Jesus allows people that He loves to go through storms. Proverbs three eleven and 12 says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof, for the Lord reproves Him who He loves as a Father, the Son in whom He delights. And so He allowed them to go into the storm, to test their faith, and expand their minds, to blow their minds of who God is. And that should not bother us, because God is sovereign. And He is working all things for His glory. Tim, Tim Keller had a quote on this that I love. If you have a God great enough and powerful enough to be mad at because He doesn't stop your suffering, you also have a God who's great enough and powerful enough to have reasons you can't understand. Make sense? We can't have it both ways. If we say, well, He could have prevented that, He didn't have to allow that, then you have to acknowledge that He's so great that He may have plans you don't understand. He does have plans you don't understand. And we need to have a bigger view of God instead of this small view that has to fit into what I understand. And so God often intentionally allows storms in our lives to test and build our faith. Be open to it. See, the next point to get out of this is we struggle with fear when we have wrong views of God. We struggle with fear when we have wrong views of God. When we think that God isn't working, He's abandoned us, or when we think that God cannot work. Those are wrong views of God. And that's what the disciples were struggling with in verse 38. But He was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke Him and said to Him, Teacher, do You not care that we are perishing? And in that phrase, we get the idea that He doesn't love them, He doesn't care. We get the idea that they believe they are perishing and all of these are wrong views of God. And they didn't get it. See, fear for us includes worry and distress. How many times do we get in situations that that just throw us... Like, what are you doing, God? I don't understand. Maybe a medical emergency happens, or 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 maybe we we have a death in the family, or maybe a loss of a job, or maybe a, a house gets broken into, or a car gets stolen, and, and whatever it is, we, we're like, God, I don't understand. And we have a choice at that point. Are we going to expand our view of who God is or are we going to worry and be in distress? Are we going to trust God or are we going to lose it? See, fear and faith in God's Word are opposite concepts. They're opposite concepts. So faith is the antidote for fear. Fear comes from a lack of faith. Jesus was asleep it says. Why was he able to sleep? Genuinely, he's not pretending. Genuinely exhausted sleep. He was able to sleep because he knew who his father was. And he knew God the Father was almighty. His plan would not be thwarted. And God would wake him up at just the right time to take care of the situation. And so he could sleep because of his trust in God the Father. But the disciples rebuke Jesus. Say literally, Teacher, are we to drown for all you care? And we see three mistakes they made about God. Three things they thought. Number one, they thought Jesus made a mistake. You sent us here. We obeyed you. That's how we're different from Jonah. He was disobeying. We were obeying. And they questioned his omniscience. They questioned his omniscience. Number two, they thought he didn't care. They saw him sleeping as having an indifferent attitude towards them, a relaxed attitude. Oh, well, I can get 12 more. And that was an attack on his love. Finally, they thought they were perishing. They thought they were going to sink and God's plan would be over. And that was an attack on His power, His omnipotence. And it's interesting that all of the disciples' concerns, all of the things that they were worried with and struggling with and overwhelmed with, came from a lack of understanding of who God is. They came from a faulty view of his love, a faulty view of his knowledge, a faulty view of his power. And if they knew those things, if they knew who Jesus was, the worry and the stress wouldn't have been there. And their misunderstanding of who he was and what he was doing led them to a conclusion that exposed their lack of faith you like wives if you came home and your husband was gone and you decided he was out golfing and that's just what you figured out and and you're having a tough day and the kids are just going nuts and there's things to do around the house. How are you feeling about your husband about that time? A little frustrated, right? He gets home a little later that night and you find out that what he was actually doing was shopping for you for a gift because it's a special day making reservations at your favorite restaurant, and arranging childcare so you could have an evening off. Does the truth change your view of the situation? Absolutely. And in the same way, the disciples, if they could have had a true view of what God was doing and who God was, they wouldn't have been upset. They would have acknowledged their Creator. And so Jesus stands and calms the sea and challenges their faith. Have you still no faith? You should be farther along by now. Some of the things they've already seen or heard about. Jesus' baptism and the dove comes down and God the Father speaks. This is My beloved Son. They had heard about Him withstanding the temptation of Satan. They had watched Him heal a man with an unclean spirit and many demon-possessed people. They had watched Peter's mother-in-law healed and many others. They had watched the leper cleansed, which was impossible. They had watched the healing of the paralytic and then he stood up and he walked. It was impossible. They had watched Jesus go up against the scribes and Pharisees and put them in their place. They had watched Him heal a withered hand. They had heard the parables and they got out in the storm and it went poof! because now the circumstances seemed bigger and stronger than Jesus. And Jesus wanted them to have faith in who He was and that He would work things out according to His plan. This isn't a call, though, for the disciples to just sit and wait as water fills the boat and the waves come over. It was a call to act in faith, not to sit in faith. To be bailing, to be doing everything they could, knowing that Jesus would not let them down. And they were doing everything they could, but they had forgot the power and the authority of God. Finally, the third point that we'll end with this morning. Storms bring us into a new understanding of God if we are receptive. Storms bring us into a new understanding of God if we are receptive. Their small view of God was growing. It was getting bigger. Their response after they saw Jesus calm the sea, their response was great fear because their minds saw something new. And in the first episode, Jesus is saying, I am bigger than nature. I am bigger than any circumstances you can face. Only the Creator has the power to rebuke. Only the Creator would have the wind and sea obey them. That's who I am. And that's the same Jesus we serve. That's the same Jesus that saves us from our sins. The Creator of all things. The One who can tell the wind to stop, and it does, and who will tell the sea to be calm, and at will. And so their storm, their trials, served to display God's greatness. It was necessary for their spiritual growth. James 1, 2, and 3, and 4, "...count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." And so through the storm, Jesus was revealed in amazing ways and the disciples got a glimpse and their faith grew and the mustard seed grew. And the challenge for us is, is that the attitude we have when we are going through some of the worst things that we can imagine? Do we give up and think God has abandoned us? Or do we see it as an opportunity to see God in a whole new way and to display God in a whole new way? And that changes our understanding of circumstances. I'm challenged by the story because I'm challenged with, is my God too small? When I worry, when I get overwhelmed, when I get discouraged, is my view of God too small and it is because none of those things would happen if i really understood how great and mighty and powerful my lord and savior is and i challenge you with that this morning i know as a congregation so many things have happened in the last year or two and what an opportunity what an opportunity for us to stand and say this is what god did This is what God is doing. This is what I've learned about God. I can think back to some of the darkest times that Susie and I have gone through and some of the most difficult times. And I can look back and I can say, God is almighty. And he never lost control. And I had no idea what he was doing and it hurt but i saw god in a whole new way as we saw him as our portion and as our comfort and as our strength and we saw him working his plan and it being about his will and not my will did i like going through those things no do i want them again no but would I trade the intimate relationship I have with my Lord and Savior that came out of that? No. How big is your God? Elizabeth Elliot, who lost her husband on the mission field, doing the work of God, said this: "God is God, and since He is God, He is worthy of my worship and my service." I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. And in intense grief, she came to the largeness of God. God is immeasurable, he is infinite, he is sovereign. Let us not ever forget that. Lord God, our Father, we praise You and worship You because You are greater than anything, than any anyone, than any circumstance, than anything we face. You are greater and You have it in Your control and You are working Your plan. And Lord, I pray that when we have unbelief, when we struggle with faith, that You would impress on us the truth of who You are the truth of your omniscience, the truth of your omnipotence, the truth of your deep love. And we would rest in those things rather than worry and run around wondering who our God is. Lord, thank you for your love. Thank you for your power. Even when we don't understand. Thank you that we don't understand. We love you, God. We serve you. We worship you. In Jesus' name.